I want the intro music, the snare drum. Welcome back to the Understanding Urbanism podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is the podcast that accompanies the book of the same name, Understanding Urbanism, which is edited by me, Dallas Rogers, Adrian Keane, Taran Alizahe, and Jacqueline Nelson. The book is published by Palgrave Macmillan, and like always, it is so good to have you along. In this episode, we'll be talking about Chapter 3, Economic Cities. This chapter is written by Thomas Sigler, Glenn Searle, and Kirsten Martinus, and I'm paraphrasing and quoting the authors in this episode. My name is Thomas Sigler. I'm an urban geographer at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. But like always, this episode is my interpretation of Thomas, Glenn, and Kirsten's work, so any errors, if there are any, are my own. And it's also important to note that I recorded this episode on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, Australia. This chapter provides a summary of the growth and developments of cities over time, with a focus on their economic function. And so my five key takeaways from this chapter are, first, one of the most important trends over the past century has been the rapid urbanization of our cities that has been tied to industrialization or the industrial era. Second, in some parts of the world, there's also been a subsequent deindustrialization. Third, as urban economies shift over time, so do the characteristics of the built environment. And these include things like employment nodes, building types, and transport modes. Fourth, the recent suburbanization of our cities was driven by things like changing transport modes, things like increasing car ownership, but this has not been felt evenly in all contexts, in all countries. And fifth, the new economic functions of our cities are tied to the new information age, and this will continue to transform our cities and urban spaces for many years to come. So cities have various dimensions. They have cultural dimensions, uh, social dimensions, and obviously they had a lot of economic dimensions. So the concept behind the chapter was simply to try to encapsulate two particular dimensions of cities. Uh, one was the distribution of cities and the economic functions thereof. And the other one was the internal geography of cities, but from an economic perspective. Thomas, Glenn, and Kirsten used this chapter to do three key things. To show how economic processes play a role in shaping cities, to show how cities play a role in shaping the economy, and to show how economic activity is distributed within and between cities. They kick this chapter off with a brief overview of how various economic processes have shifted and changed over time in cities and how the urban form of our cities is mirrored in these economic shifts over time. The growth and development of cities in many ways parallels the ebb and flow of the global and local economies. And we've already talked about this in the podcast. Large-scale urbanisation has been a relatively recent phenomenon. But this chapter puts a lot more meat on the bones in terms of the evolution of cities. 
So cities around the world are distinguished by different functions. So for example, an obvious example would be a city on a port would be a port city and its economy would be radically different than a city on a mountain, right? So if we sort of empiricize that and we think of, well, what does that actually look like in terms of the economy of the city? A city at a port would have a lot of maritime workers. It might have a lot of people working in logistics or warehousing or distribution. It might have people like stevedores and people who work on the actual port, but then it also might have uh, back offices of the shipping companies. And so, you know, that's a small example, but that same metaphor would apply to lots of different cities that have very uh, distinguished economies. So for example, um, I'm here in Sydney, Australia, and Sydney's known for its financial industry. So if you go to the CBD, the Central Business District of Sydney, you'll find lots of people in suits and ties. And most of them work in consulting or real estate or insurance or what we would call advanced producer services. Um, conversely, if you go to a university town, uh, like you'd find in many places in the world, you'd find a lot of professors and lecturers and students for that matter. And that would have a very different economic profile. So the idea behind looking at the distribution of cities is simply to understand how cities differ uh, in their economic composition and then how other characteristics about them, the age profile, the size of the city, the history of the city, can actually be linked in some meaningful way to its economic functions. And I think the critical thing about that is that economic functions change over time. Uh, again, we're in Sydney, Australia right now, and Sydney started off as a colonial port. And so, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, the example of the port would have very much applied. There would have been lots of people working on the docks 200 years ago or even 100 years ago. There would have been a lot of heavy industry and a lot of blue-collar industry. Uh, now, Sydney's changed radically since, since that time, and we would actually have a lot of white-collar industry now, and that's been a bit more segregated throughout the city. The second component of that is the geography of the city. So every city has its own sort of geographical dimension. Some of that is dictated by uh, topography. You know, we have obviously hills and valleys, and that's sort of the most basic level. Uh, but we also have different economic functions for different parts of the city. Now, some of that is attributable to zoning. So certain activities are allowed to happen in certain areas. There are obviously, you can't put an airport uh, next to a nursery school. And generally speaking, uh, you don't have heavy factories adjacent to the central business district. Uh, but 100 years ago, you may have had that because transportation technologies were different. So again, the second part of the chapter, which focuses on that internal distribution, is also concerned with uh, change over time how the economic functions change with respect to one another and how they change with respect to sort of the global economy over time. So that's a good overview of the chapter, but Thomas Glenn and Kirsten start with the pre-modern cities which were mainly small and dispersed. These early settlements are probably best described as agricultural villages, with no more than a few thousand residents, and an economic base that was largely tied to food production, the exchange of goods and services, and some early forms of urban governance. The earliest cities are thought to have emerged in Anatolia, in what is now known as Turkey. Although, Early evidence of urbanisation has also been found in North Africa, in places like Egypt and Sudan, for example. And it's worth noting that traces of human habitation have also been found to date from much earlier than this. 
but these are often linked to more nomadic or semi-nomadic life rather than the types of habitation we see in these early cities. So while cities arguably date back approximately 10,000 years to the time of the Neolithic Revolution, no city exceeded a million people in population until approximately 2,000 years ago. This changed with what we now call the major empires in cities like Alexandria, which is in Egypt today, and Baghdad, Beijing, cities like that. These cities emerged as major imperial hubs at various points during the first millennium BCE. These cities were all underwritten, at least to some degree, on imperial rule, where everything from trade to military strategy to social organisation were determined by an absolute ruler, rather than democratically elected, as in many cities today. Many of these cities were also tied to what we might call an urban system that was comprised of a network of smaller cities that were all linked by trade. One of the most important changes in these early cities was the production of what we might call an agricultural surplus. An agricultural surplus is basically when a group produces more food than that group needs for their immediate survival. Over time, this allowed this group of people to gradually transition away from subsistence agriculture into increasingly more sophisticated occupations, and this changed the type of jobs that were undertaken in these cities. So in the early cities, the vast majority of people worked in agricultural production. But as urbanisation increased over time, a small but not insignificant class of people started to diversify from agricultural livelihoods. As these city economies diversified, a new group of artisans started to engage in small-scale industries, so things like metalwork, pottery, leather making, and so on. And a new group of merchants emerged to buy and sell these artesian products, both within cities and between cities. From the 16th century onwards, the so-called European model, which had been developing for several thousand years, was exported overseas through colonial conquest in places like Africa, the Americas, Southeast Asia and Australia. And we've talked about the implications of this for countries like Australia earlier in this podcast. These new colonial cities, so places like Sydney, were established as colonial administrative centres for the European superpowers from the 16th century. And we've talked about this earlier in the podcast. The core purpose of establishing these cities around the world was for the colonial powers' administrative and commercial purposes. That's why they came here. So Thomas Glennon Kirsten mentioned Sydney and Melbourne in Australia, which were invaded and colonised to serve the interests of the British Crown just like Havana, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and other places were invaded and settled in other parts of the world. And many of these colonial cities were further contested by other colonial powers. So think about New York, which went from the Dutch to the British, and then under independent American control. And as we learnt in Chapter 2, many indigenous populations were dispossessed of their land and livelihood through violent conquest, And many of these colonial cities were slave ports, meaning they produced great wealth for the imperial powers at the expense and violence of the people they were trafficking. In colonial cities, 
Indigenous residents and slaves often lived outside of the formal city boundaries or in inferior living quarters within the cities, and they were rarely permitted to participate fully in civic or economic life. So we, we really tried to, I guess, what we might say is decolonize the discipline. So there's, there's been a lot of work looking at the fact that academia, but particularly the social sciences, are in a way colonized. So when, when we think of a city, we immediately think a, a textbook example might be the British city model, particularly in Australia, the United States, where there was a history of British settlement. And I don't actually think that's valid anymore. So we made a really deliberate attempt to globalize it. In any example we drew upon, whether it was technologically driven cities, we tried to pick examples from India or China. When we looked at urban growth, we tried to consider that not every city goes through the same urban transition at the same time in history. So for example, China is just on the tail end of its own industrial revolution, whereas cities in the United States really finished their industrial revolution 70 or 80 years ago. The next major expansion of cities across the world was largely tied to the Industrial Revolution. By the 1920s, London had become the world's largest city and would remain the largest until it was surpassed by New York around a century later. London's growth and expansion was directly tied to the Industrial Revolution, which was focused on the rapid growth of manufacturing through technological advances and mass production in factories. We've talked about this a little bit, but the Industrial Revolution was initially tied to the capacity of steam engines to generate large amounts of energy, and this allowed for machine-based production. And these innovations were further boosted by the later addition of electronic power generation. So each new technological advance pushed the Industrial Revolution forward. And the Industrial Revolution is linked to urban expansion for a number of reasons. So the Industrial Revolution, you could trace it as far back as the mid-18th century in northwestern Europe. And we're talking what we would consider pretty primitive technologies at that point. We're talking uh, sawmills that are driven by rivers and, you know, steam engines uh, that b- before the internal combustion engine. So the Industrial Revolution is a, is a very long period in history, and it's also defined by a lot of interrelated but also successive technologies. So a couple of things distinguish, I guess, what you might say, the more recent variations of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, in the first instance, we've we've gotten a lot better at manufacturing. So we're not talking, you know, scores and scores and scores of people on assembly lines, although that does exist. But a lot of it's very automated, very technologically intensive. Also, I think with respect to cities, the important thing to remember is that the Industrial Revolution doesn't just indicate a shift in occupation towards manufacturing. The Industrial Revolution also implicated changes in science, and and it came along with the Scientific Revolution, where there there were massive leaps in hygiene. Uh, There were massive leaps in things like antibiotics and sewerage and ways of controlling the urban metabolism that allowed for people to live at higher densities. And now that we've gotten a lot better at that, it's not you know, common to have influenza outbreaks anymore, but it was actually quite common 100 years ago, we can now build at a much larger scale and magnitude than we could. So when when China's Industrial Revolution came about, 
starting in the 1970s, we'd already perfected a lot of those things as human beings. So as a result, the magnitude of urbanization tied to industrialization in places like Japan, in China, in South Korea, in Thailand, has been far more large scale, far more large scale. When, when London really hit its peak as an industrial city, it was a city of six or 10 million, right? I mean, some of the Southeast Asian and East Asian cities are, are pushing 20 or 30 million, and they're in extended megapolitan regions of, say, 50 million. So the scale of everything has been expanded by the latest wave. Mm. What is the distribution of cities around the world, and how's that changing? It's fairly well distributed between east and west, although it didn't used to be. So if you look at league tables of the largest cities in the world 50, especially 100 years ago, the vast majority of them would be in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, A lot of them would have been in Europe. A lot of them would have been in the United States and Canada. In the 1970s and 80s, we saw the emergence of what we think of as the sort of third world city or the third world megacity. So we we started to see large-scale urbanization in cities like Mexico City or Sao Paulo or even, even larger cities in Asia, such as at the time Beijing or Bangkok. In the meantime, as I just mentioned, a large parts of the world have undergone industrialization, and the implication is massive urbanization. So essentially, it's it's a twofold process. Uh, the first part, first step of the equation is that people move off the land, so they they cease agrarian ways of living. They they a lot of their ancestors were farmers, and they'll move into the city um, in pursuit of industrial jobs or opportunities in the city. The second step of that process is declining fertility. And so as people move into cities, they have fewer children for a variety of reasons. One is they become more educated. Two, they have less space. They live in apartments as opposed to houses. And another reason is they don't need the farm labor anymore. So what's happened is, is we've had large-scale urbanization in Asia in particular, And that's really, really kicked up in the last 20, 30 years to the point where off the top of my head, I think there's something like 200 cities in China that are a million or more in population, which is really mind-blowing considering in all of Europe, there might be a couple dozen. So that's the, at the global scale. What about inside cities? How are they changing? So there are two interesting and quite antagonistic processes. So on one hand, you have large-scale suburbanization, and that characterizes countries where car use is really dominant. So especially societies, North American societies, but also parts of Europe, increasingly parts of Asia, and of course, Australia, where the sort of dominant paradigm is the detached dwelling, where most families, if not almost all families, would own a car. And what that the effect that has is really pushing urbanization outward. So uh, in the city I live in, for example, Brisbane, to drive from the northern extremities of the city to the southern extremities of the city would take you approximately an hour and a half, and you might be driving across 100 kilometers of suburbanization. So you have suburban sprawl. That's quite prolific. On the other hand, you've got reurbanization. And that takes various forms. So that can be sort of deliberate state-led in the form of urban renewal. It can be uh, living, it can be driven by social changes such as gentrification and people moving back to the city. And it can be a combination of both. So in a way, you've got these opposing processes where it's actually difficult to make one solid statement about the, the state of cities. Uh, say, unlike 30, 40 years ago. So in the 1980s, there was a pretty clear trend towards suburbanization, and we really only saw a little bit of urbanization, particularly in the more developed parts of the world. 
What are some of the biggest economic shifts or biggest economic drivers that will affect urban development and urbanization? So one of the things we're really interested in studying at the moment is the sharing economy and the gig economy. And it's not that the sharing economy per se or the gig economy per se will be the driver. It's that we've really seen a digital revolution and there are many implications of that digital revolution. So interestingly, geographers have predicted the sort of death of geography for a long time. They've said, we don't actually need cities anymore. Uh, we could all just live at the beach and work on our laptops. And the exact opposite has happened. In fact, we've we've urbanized more than ever. We've gotten closer together rather than farther apart. But in theory, yeah, of course, no one can predict the future. And I don't have a crystal ball, unfortunately. But you're going to anyway. I will. Yeah, I will <laughs> predict the future. Uh, these This digital transformation really is affecting us in meaningful ways. And I would actually say more than technologically, it's affecting us in cultural ways. So new generations who are really becoming dominant stakeholders in cities, so particularly uh, Generation Y and Generation Z or Generation Z, uh, who would have been born sometime between approximately 1990 and 2010, uh, are really embracing digital technologies. I mean, it's rare to see, you know, any one of my students, for example, that doesn't have a smartphone and certainly doesn't, that doesn't use it all the time. And it's not just the phone itself, but it's the, it's the applications within the phone and the, the new ways of connectivity that are being enabled to that smartphone technology. So people are connecting in different ways. And also I think a big shift is, is consumptive. So people are actually okay with consuming less. And that's happened for the first time, at least in the last century. So if the Industrial Revolution was all about producing things, the Digital Revolution is all about producing possibilities, knowledges, and meaningful connections. And we actually can see this in the data with Generation Y and Generation Z or Generation Z actually eschewing material objects. And one interesting data point we have is that this is the first generation in human history where the rate of driver's licenses is less than their parents. Is that connected to urbanization? I'm wondering because of space of our cities, because of the public transport in our cities, or or are they not connected in that way? I would I would say they are connected, absolutely, because I think this generation is very much trying to avoid becoming like their parents. Everyone, no one wants to be like their parents. And so they're saying, my parents worked really, really hard to achieve a suburban detached dwelling with a white picket fence and 2.5 children and a dog and two cars. And I watch them work really hard to achieve that, and I'm not sure I want that. And I'm not saying I'm not saying that today's sort of youngsters, you know, the Generation Ys and Generation Zs, don't want that. But what I am saying is there has been a counter movement against that, and it's saying let's reurbanize, let's rediscover the magic of cities that our grandparents and great grandparents lived when cities were booming and exciting and industrial. For, despite all the problems and contradictions they had, cities are really great place, can be great places to live and quite exciting places. And I think part of that is, is, is making sacrifices. And some of that is sacrificing owning a car. Some of that's sacrificing space. Some of that's maybe paying a little more of your take-home income in rent. But what you're getting are what we call the externalities that come with that. So the benefits of being in a city, your proximity to things like parks and universities and libraries, that doesn't come as easily in the suburbs. Would it have been possible for the baby boomers to do that, do you think? 
I think so, but I don't think that was the prevailing techno-economic system at the time. I think big business was pushing them to the suburbs, and I think a lot of innovations that they saw as modern were available for the first time in human history. So, for example, if you think of the baby boomers who you know, were born largely between the 40s and the 60s, for their their parents and especially their grandparents to have owned a car, a refrigerator, television, television to even get on an airplane was, mm. was prohibitively expensive. So the the Fordist practices that allowed us to produce things on such a large scale and made the cost a lot cheaper, for them, owning a television in a detached dwelling, becoming a reality was a miracle of science. So it's what pushed them to the suburbs because they were saying, I am the first person in my entire family history to have all these things. Isn't this great? How do economies shape the landscape of cities? Sure. So the easiest analogy would be to use what's called a bid-rent curve. So if you start in the middle of the city, so every city has uh, what's called a rent gradient. So if we start in the middle of the city, usually rents are highest in the middle of the city. So if you think of the activities in the middle of the city, you would generally have banks and consultancies, but you would also have retail. You'd also have high-end restaurants. You'd also have fast food chains that turn over a lot of business. Uh, they are willing to pay quite a bit of rent, especially on a per, per square foot or per square meter basis. As you go farther out, the rent gets less and less expensive and therefore more and more affordable to consumers and to uh, residents to build dwellings. And so there's a strong link between the cost of land and the activities that take place. And that shifts over time. So there are several iterations of the bid rent curve. The first iterations date back two or 300 years, uh, and they actually include a ring for dairy production. So <laughs> having having milk on a daily basis was quite an important function 250 years ago. And of course, now we Be can have before milk. Before refrigeration. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Before the baby boomers bought refrigerators <laughs> and, uh, and ruined it all for the dairy <laughs> farmers who have now been pushed out to rural hinterlands, and that's no longer considered to be an urban activity. So the bid rent curve really dictates what happens where. And a big tra- I can give you an example. A big transformation that's happening now is in retail. So because of online retail, we're starting to see fewer people pushing through the shops, and therefore retailers are struggling to pay the high rent. So what we're actually seeing is, you know, for the first time in maybe, maybe even 100 years, we're seeing flagship retailers failing and vacate some of those premium inner city spaces. So, and that's a purely economic function. It has to do with that digital... Uh, transformation I just mentioned. And also you would tend to have lower density dwellings farther out from the center of the city simply because they require more land and larger footprints are only possible where land is relatively cheap. Mm. If you were to give some students advice about going out and reading the landscape of the city for economics or economies or economic impacts, what would you say? Well, I'm a big advocate of going out into the city and doing some exploring. And I guess one of the things I would say is when you do come across an economic activity, think about why that economic activity is there. So if you're looking at a warehouse district, is that warehouse district there because maybe it's on some low-lying land that's susceptible to flooding and it's not suitable for housing? Is it there because historically that was a dock and it's just a function of path dependency where that warehouse has been there for 100 years? Is that warehouse there because it's an Amazon distribution center and it's actually pays quite a bit of rent to be in the center city, right? There could be a lot of explanations for why you're seeing a warehouse. So next time you see an ambulant vendor or a retail shop uh, or even an office building, just think, why is this office building located here? And there could be a lot of different explanations. And you know, thinking like an urban geographer, you should be able to put the pieces together. <laughs> 